0: take a deep breath. As we approach the end of 2020, have you taken time to reflect on the year? How you showed up as an employee, a colleague, as a consumer in the wider world? Today, we're doing just that, with 10 of our most memorable moments in business from the UAE and beyond here in 2020. You are listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from The National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Kelsey Warner, future editor. It was a painful year. But it also had times of transformation and leaders who spoke out to guide us through unprecedented uncertainty. We will listen to some of those moments today. And joining me in the studio is not my usual co-host, Mustafa Rawi. Today, I'm joined by Felicity Glover, our personal finance editor, who has come in to pinch hit for Mustafa. Hi, Felicity. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Kelsey. Hi. It's great to be here.
0: So we're going to jump right in. Our first clip at number 10 from back in February on a morning I'll personally never forget. Felicity, where were you back in February?
1: I was in the UAE, but also beginning to wonder, you know, what effect COVID-19 will be having on us, um, you know, moving forward. It was certainly a time, it was a few weeks before the World Health Organization
0: had declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. It felt in that moment like... Something was building, but we weren't sure what. So we had Dr. Rakesh Suri, the chief executive officer of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, in to talk to us late in February. And I asked Dr. Suri what Abu Dhabi residents should know about the novel coronavirus and if they should be concerned. Here was his message back in February.
2: These types of uh, infections are not new to the world. They're cyclical and they happen every so often. This is a different, it's a novel or a new virus. What's different about this is that it, um, it's being spread, news of it is being spread in a whole different way. We are connected globally through electronic means in a way that we never before have been in history. Coronavirus is not the most deadly virus or infectious agent that we've seen in our lifetimes. Ebola was far more deadly. And what's paradoxical about a more deadly agent is it spreads less rapidly because if you think about it, it actually um, takes the life of those it infects and therefore the victims get don't get very far. Uh, we are prepared to meet any challenge that arises, but I want to send the message to the public to not be paranoid, not be scared. We are prepared. We are ready. We are with you and we will get past this.
0: That was Dr. Rakesh Suri, chief executive of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, leading us off. And that was certainly a message that I carried with me throughout the year as the UAE really did rise to the public health challenges that it's been set and continues to rise to these challenges. And a few weeks later, a few weeks after I, we spoke with him, we all shifted to work from home. The National went fully remote, as did you know the rest of the country and much of the rest of the world. So for those lucky enough to keep their jobs... Working from home was one of the first lifestyle shifts we all made to cope with the pandemic. Felicity, what are you seeing as the personal finance editor? You're really facing our readers in a lot of ways um, and talking to them kind of on a daily basis about what that experience is for them.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, there are two extremes here. A lot of people who were furloughed, um, you know, put on uh, leave without pay, many who lost their jobs, but then others who were fortunate enough to keep their jobs and work from home. So, you know, you saw some people uh, saving money, for example, um, without even, you know, trying, if you know what I mean, you know, they're not um, going out, they're not going to restaurants and things, whereas others were really struggling. And so, you know, I saw... A huge amount of, um, you know, letters and cries for help, particularly for those people who had lost their jobs or were trying to exist on um, lower salaries and high debts.
0: And for those still staying in their jobs, work from home became the new reality. How was that experience for you?
1: Well, I mean, for me personally, I really enjoyed it. um, And I just love the fact that, you know, it finally debunked this 20th century concept of presenteeism in which every boss expects everybody to be at work every day. But uh, I think, you know, everybody proved that you're just as more just as productive, if not more productive at home as you are in the office.
0: So number nine, and to talk to us about the legacy of the big move to home offices, we had Naeem Yazbek, director of Microsoft UAE. Here he is.
3: I would say that technology, to an extent, it did save uh, the world in a way or another. Uh, and it, it's helping in shaping culture because I think... Uh, uh, this concept of not only working from home remotely is, is remote everything we call it now, because everything is now remote needs a major cultural transformation for organization to accept that remote working is okay. Remote studying is okay. Remote medicine is okay. And it does work. It does provide the flexibility. And I think at the beginning, you've said something that was very valuable. The word may go into a hybrid mode in the future. However, uh, what, what happened over the past two months is not going to be lost, I can assure you. There is a tremendous opportunity now to kind of leverage the existing situation, to double-click on the innovation and honestly push the culture further uh, so that the culture is able to leverage those innovations so that hopefully when we are uh, 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 done from this, at least sooner than later, uh Every organization and every industry is going to reflect back and say, all right, we've gone through that experience. Technology has proven to allow us to do things that we wouldn't even imagine before. What is it that we want to keep and what are the things that we want to retain from the pre-pandemic?
1: That was Naeem Yazbek, director of Microsoft UAE. As the personal finance editor, uh, one of the things that I found uh, working from home was that everything uh, for me became you know, an online world, so I was getting deliveries uh, every day. Um, But for some businesses, particularly restaurant owners, it was not necessarily a good thing. Here's Ian Ohan, uh, founder and CEO of restaurant operator Crush Brands, which owns Freedom Pizza, talking about the scourge of the delivery and what impact it had on his business.
4: The most important thing, and it's it's interesting, it's something that our industry tends to overlook completely, is the data because ultimately that's what all these companies are after, and yet our industry sort of overlooks it. Um, but that's the key. I mean, and 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 it's not data for the sake of you know uh, capitalizing on data the way they wish to. It's data so you can be connected to your customer directly, right? Um, any industry that allows uh, some you know a third party to um, you know, insert itself between its, its customer and itself is, is a dangerous place to be, you know, whether that's in food and beverage or any other business. Um, and so that connectivity with the customer is absolutely critical. And the third party delivery companies, they sidestep that. Um, the other issue that with third party delivery is the, the experience at the door is this professional delivery. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about contactless delivery and the things that third party companies are doing. The reality is, those drivers cannot even go into a, you know they, they don't have a, a restaurant to go into to wash their hands. They have no place to to sanitize themselves to adhere to COVID nineteen restrictions and uh, and hygiene standards. So there's this whole idea of you know somebody else delivering your food, um, not using proper delivery bags, not using hot bags, cold bags, um, and and caring for your food. So I think those are the, some of the issues that are faced um, by that. And when you give up connectivity with your customer. Um, you have no control over that relationship, and that relationship can be controlled by third parties, and they use that to leverage higher fees from customers and from uh, from merchants. So that's dangerous in my view.
0: That was Ian O'Han, founder and chief executive of restaurant operator Crush Brands. While we dealt with a very painful present, we also like to look ahead at what is possible. One concept that piqued my interest this year is the idea that our personal data, from our blood type and eye color to what we browse online, should be owned by us as individuals. This data can be shared, but shouldn't that be up to us, and shouldn't we, in some cases, be paid for that data we choose to share? Right now, it seems like all of the wealth is accruing to big tech. Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and the like, all big winners of 2020. To walk me through what a commodity market for data might look like, I spoke to Jennifer Scott the executive chairman of the Commons Project.
5: I think whenever you want to build a new market that didn't exist before, the first thing you, it needs to happen is a pricing discovery. You know, how much how much people are willing to pay for what kind of data? How much people are willing to hold back from that kind of data, right? So, for example, I mentioned this in my TED Talk that for medical research, you, want, you might want to donate your data. And um, for buying a sweater, e-commerce, for them to recommend better products, I might just exchange my, my search history with a voucher, a discount voucher. But when it comes to manipulating political votes or uh, even fundamental scientific facts, that kind of information, I would completely reject. And I think you know, if you have the power to set the... There are two ways of doing this. One is if you can set the power to... Reject um, uh, price using pricing power to reject this kind of uh, manipulation. That's one one tool. Now, another tool is that when we have not-for-profit organizations building fundamental digital infrastructure as public good, instead of uh, just want to keep harvesting your data, keep pushing you to uh, prolong your time on site. This is a very very valuable cosmology uh, for Facebook. If you follow Tristan Harris, uh, Tristan Harris used to work for Google and uh, he's been a very active uh, advocate in terms of um, the the runs of uh, Google and of Facebook. So he, he talks about this frequently that with Facebook's AI that it discovered that whenever there's some very divisive, very extreme, provocative um, political news, um, news feed in show up in your feed, people will stay, when people are angry, people will stay on the site to argue with each other. That's when they spend most of the time on the site, And that translates into advertising dollar. You think about this year, right? This year we started with the Australian um, fire, um, bushfire, uh, historical unprecedented the bushfire. And then we have global pandemic. And then we have incredibly horrifying forest fire in California, remember that scene in, in San Francisco, the sky completely turned orange. And I was thinking, oh my God, in the past a decade or two, the brightest minds in technology in those couple of decades are all dedicated to their collective intelligence into maximizing ad clicks. But if you look around the world, the world is broken. Uh, what are we doing
0: That was Jennifer Scott, the executive chairman of the Commons Project, and I do really think this is something to watch out for. One of the hardest days of the year for many across the region was August 4th, the day of the Beirut port explosion that killed 204 people and reminded us all of the intractable issues facing Lebanon amid a devastating pandemic. Masoud Derhali, our business editor who has been covering Lebanon's economy for the last two decades, put that day into perspective.
6: I I think... If anything, this week highlights how much has changed and how much has not changed in the country since the end of its civil war. The detritus of the the civil war left the country with warlords who run the country, who've who've been basically also the Achilles heel that has um, held the country back from moving forward. It's a continuation of of a problem that uh, emanates back to 1990 when the war ended. Without getting too much into politics, you know, unlike South Africa, which had a truth and reconciliation commission, where people were able to move on, turn the page and elect the leadership that had the, the interests of the of the nation, of the people, of the economy at heart, very much what Lebanon ended up with were people with vested interests who only cared about advancing their interests.
0: That was Masoud Durhali, our business editor, from the UAE-based business owner all the way to the behemoth that is the aviation industry, which in 2020 was a bit of the biggest casualty in some ways from a business perspective, with losses to the industry still being quantified. Today, the International Air Transport Association is working to get us back up in the air. Last week, it disclosed key features of a new application, the travel pass, to prove that passengers have tested negative for COVID-19 or have been vaccinated, which just represents a bit of a sea change. I mean, we've all been grounded for all intents and purposes. IATA said down by 90 percent year on year in October. So a recovery is coming. But We had Ayyad's Middle East director, Mohammed al Bakri talking about the aviation industry and what it represents and what it's been going through this summer. Here he is.
2: And let's not forget, air travel has been built during the last 100 years and collective set of standards and guidelines and agreements that have been agreed worldwide. It's a system that works no matter where you fly, no matter where you depart, where you arrive. It's the same system that governs this industry. We need to maintain uh, this collective agreement and this collective thinking when it comes to the post-COVID-19 air travel restart. And we need to make sure that all countries actually adapt similar approaches so the industry could start in a rapid pace rather than really, I mean, it would be hindered and and the restart will take forever.
1: That was Mohammed Al-Bakri of IATA. One of the biggest business stories of the year in the UAE was the fall from grace of one of the country's most storied entrepreneurs, B.R. Shetty. Our correspondent, Michael Fay, has been on the story since day one. Here he was talking to us about how alleged misconduct was uncovered at NMC Health.
7: First, uh, inklings of problems came, it was almost like a bother really. It was a a report from... uh, uh, an activist investor in the U.S. called Muddy Waters Research. Um, now, Muddy Waters is famous for um, picking out companies uh, where it's, it's found the Carson Block says he concentrates on companies where the profits seem to be too good to be true. And in this case, with NMC Health, They published a very detailed report, which made a number of suggestions, including that the company, NMC, had inflated its cash balances, it had overpaid for assets, and various other bits of financial chicanery. So once the share price started to fall, and it fell quite dramatically, it fell pretty much 75% between the report being published in December and early January and that uncovered a series of things, uh, mainly the, the fact that Mr. Shetty himself and a couple of the other directors had leveraged uh, their positions. So they borrowed money against the holdings in NMC Health. In, in Mr. Shetty's case, he borrowed money uh, against his NMC Health shares to pay for acquisitions that were made for the Group. So although those two companies aren't directly connected, it's caused knock-on issues for Able Group as well.
1: That was our own Michael Fay at number five. The economic shock of the pandemic had a knock-on effect on oil prices. In April, for the first time in history, the US oil price turned negative, plunging below zero as output exceeded storage capacity and subdued demand due to the coronavirus pandemic grinding the world economy to a halt. To help us make sense of it all, we often turn to Robin Mills, the CEO of Kumar Energy, and our energy columnist. When oil prices slid negative and the world was wondering if we had passed peak oil demand, here's what he had to say.
8: I don't think we will have passed the peak for oil demand yet. Uh, I mean, look, I think oil demand this year is going to be far, far down from, from 2019, and no doubt about that. Uh, may well be down in 2021 20, as well. Uh, but ultimately, I think oil demand will bounce back. I think oil demand, probably, global oil demand probably has a still at least a few years of growth left in it. But I think this will bring forward the peak. People were talking about a peak of oil use in the 2030s sometime, perhaps. You know That date may well now come forward. But I think we're definitely uh, very likely to have been past the peak of carbon dioxide emissions. So 2018 and 2019, CO2 emissions were roughly flat. 2020 for sure is going to be far lower You know because of all this interruption to the economy, shipping and uh, road transport. Air travel, a big interruption to the Chinese economy, so less coal use. Now, yes, the world economy may bounce back in 2021 and so on. Let's hope that it does. Um, but we're seeing, any we were anyway seeing a gradual impetus for cleaner energy, improved energy efficiency, um, gas replacing coal in places like China, and of course, rising use of renewable energy and just starting to see, see electric vehicles coming in as, as, as a mainstream technology. So, put all of that together, I, and I think it's hard to see. Even if the economy bounces back very well in 2021, um, hard to see that, that, that we will ever regain those, those levels of CO2 emissions of 2019. There's at least at least one bright spot if we have turned the corner on emissions.
0: That was the Nationals energy columnist Robin Mills. So another unforgettable day in the studio was talking to Mohammed Al-Hamadi, the chief executive of the Emirates Nuclear Energy Company. Enoch, 12 years in the making, helped the UAE become the first Arab country in history to open a nuclear power plant. I spoke to Mr. Al-Hamadi just days after the reactor had been powered on. Here's what he had to say about why the UAE was becoming a producer of nuclear energy.
9: UAE has a, a growing demand for electricity compared to Europe. as a shrinking uh, demand for electricity. So UAE has a different uh, uh, energy demand requirement. Looking globally, by the way, and people don't know this, uh, there is around 55 reactors that are being built today. China is starting one or two reactors every year to cut down on their carbon emissions and also cut down on coal consumption to make electricity uh, other nations are doing similar similar thing coming with the cleaner sources of energy and the only proven today clean source of energy in a base load capacity you have hydro plants and you have nuclear fortunately we don't have water here in the UAE but we created a new source that we never had which is nuclear to provide a base load clean source of energy so that's why UAE has a is a growing country and we have a, a growing demand for electricity and we've taken UE have taken the dramatic steps to fast and accelerate the cleaner sources of energy
1: that was number 9 Mohammed Al Hammadi the CEO of Emirates Nuclear Energy Company And rounding us out at number 10, we have to talk about startups, which give us hope for our future. Nor Suede, a partner at Global Ventures, had this to say about how the pandemic brought about rapid reactive change for one sector that badly needs it in the Middle East.
10: I think there is staying power in areas where we have heavily underinvested as a region. So if you take a look at healthcare and health tech, we have... 1.2 doctors per 1,000 people, and Europe sits at four doctors per 1,000 people. And so when you think about health health specifically, that under-availability of doctors will not be solved by graduating another 100,000 doctors in the next two years. That's just impossible. It's going to be solved by giving more people access to these doctors in a more efficient manner that is more cost-effective. So now you're solving the access problem of healthcare. And so that is something that's here to stay. It has staying power. And if healthcare being you know, what we believe to be a fundamental right for, for people. So then the question becomes how do we do this? And, and it's about a permanent shift in patient behavior. Whereas perhaps a year ago, a patient may have said, I don't want to see a doctor virtually. Now they're happy to. A year ago, a pay, an insurance company may have said, I don't want to pay for a doctor virtually. Now they're saying, no, we like telemedicine. And the regulator is also embracing everything digital health. So these three behavioral changes have created a permanent inflection point in people saying, okay, this has been a massively underserved industry and underinvested in industry. And even globally, healthcare is an industry that is always slow to adopt new technology and change. And so what COVID has done is just accelerated the technological adoption in this industry, as as well as some others.
0: And that was number 10, North Swede, a partner at Global Ventures. Felicity, thanks for joining me today to count down these 10 moments of 2020. I hope you took something away.
1: Thanks, Kelsey, I did. It's been great to be here. Um, look, it's been a challenging year, but we've also witnessed incredible change and stories, and it shows just how far-reaching and important business is in a year like no other. I couldn't agree more.
0: All that's left to do is thank you all for listening. I hope you learned something or took something away that you brought to your life or your job from Business Extra this year. I know I did. I wish startup founders, leaders, innovators, problem solvers the world over a very happy new year from us here at the podcast. That's it for today. All that's left is to thank our producers, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, for producing this show, and all the others this year, both in and out of the studio. We'll be with you for more Business Extra
6: in the Year.